Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Alrighty, hi, and welcome to this episode of Crash Course Catholicism. This is part two of our two-parter on the Eucharist. So in the last episode, we talked about what the Eucharist is and how it works, so transubstantiation, etc. And now in this episode, we are going to talk about how we celebrate and receive the Eucharist. In other words, we're going to talk about the Mass. Now, I'm aware that you know I'm talking to people with varying levels of exposure to the Catholic Mass. So some of you may not have been to Mass before, or maybe you haven't been for a while, and then maybe some of you are going to Mass every day. But regardless of where you're at, I think it's important for all of us to spend some time thinking about what the Mass actually is and why it looks the way that it does. Because it's really easy for us to go to Mass and kind of just like fall in line with everyone else and do all of the standing and sitting and kneeling and saying the responses, etc. And we can kind of lose sight of or forget why we're there or what the point of it all is. So the first thing we need to say about the mass is that it is prayer. It is an encounter with a person. And it's not just any kind of encounter. It's not just any kind of prayer. Pope Benedict XVI refers to the Mass as the greatest and highest act of prayer. So the Mass is a time of profound, intimate encounter with God. So if we're there to encounter a person, that means that when we go to Mass, we are not there just to watch. We are not passive spectators, right? It's not like, you know, when you're in high school and you have to go to roll call in the morning and all you have to do is just rock up and say, yeah, present when the teacher calls your name. And then for the rest of the lesson, you can just zone out. That's not what the mass is. We're not just there to tick a box and be like, yeah, okay, I'm here. It's Sunday. I'm present. We're there to pray, to actually spend time with God. And for that reason, the mass is designed and structured to actually facilitate that encounter with God. So the pinnacle and the peak of the mass is the Eucharist, communion, but everything else that happens around that supports and deepens our encounter with Christ to the point where the catechism in point 1408 says that all of the elements of the mass together combine to constitute one single act of worship. So the mass is like, it's like a mountain and at the peak of that mountain is the Eucharist, but the whole thing counts, right? Nothing that happens in the mass is superfluous. We are never just killing time. And the whole thing is structured to sort of bring us to that pinnacle of the Eucharist. Okay, so how is the Mass structured then? The Mass is essentially separated into two halves. In the first half, we have the Liturgy of the Word. So in the Liturgy of the Word, we gather together, we listen to readings from the Old and the New Testaments, the priest then gives a homily and we all offer prayers of intercession for various intentions. And then in the second half of the Mass, the liturgy of the Eucharist, we bring bread and wine to the altar. The priest offers prayers of thanksgiving. He then consecrates the bread and the wine and then we all receive communion. 
Okay, so that's the basic kind of overall structure of the mass. And this, interestingly, is a structure that has been the same ever since the very beginnings of Christianity. So the Catechism in point 1345 quotes from St. Justin Martyr, who was writing around the year 155 AD. And he describes what the Eucharistic celebration looked like back then. And it's amazing. It's like exactly the same. I won't quote the whole thing here because it's a kind of a hefty quote. But basically, in summary, he says, you know, all of the same things that I just said. He says, we gather together, we read from the prophets and the writings of the apostles. There's a homily. We offer prayers of intercession. Someone brings the bread and wine to the altar. The priest says the prayers over them. And then the Eucharist is given out to everyone present. It's exactly the same as it is now. And it makes sense that the Mass has always been structured like this because it's a really logical structure. I love the way that Bishop Barron talks about it. He says that, you know, if you were to invite your friends over to share a meal with you, you wouldn't serve the food the second that they walk in the door. Like, that would be a really weird thing to do. The natural thing to do is to spend some time catching up before you sit down to eat, right? Like, chatting and listening to them and just sitting and being present to them. And then after you've kind of spent some time catching up, then you, you know, share a meal together. It's exactly the same with the Mass, right? That before we share that meal, we spend some time just being present to our Lord, listening to him, getting to know each other a little bit better, you know, praying to him, being present to him. So that time of of listening to the readings, listening to the homily, participating in the prayers of the faithful, that's a time that we can make use of to just get to know Christ, to draw a little bit closer to him. And if we do that, and if we do it well, it will help to prepare us really well for that second half of the Mass, which is the Liturgy of the Eucharist. Now, the Liturgy of the Eucharist begins with what we call the Offertory. So this is when, you know, at least on Sundays, typically the members of the congregation or a few members of the congregation will bring the gifts of bread and wine up to the altar. And this is symbolic, again, of our participation in the Eucharist, the whole congregation, the whole church. So the priest is up there on the altar praying on our behalf, but all of us are united to that sacrifice. We're all participating in it. And, you know, if we return to that idea of sharing a meal with friends, I know that, I mean, at least in Australia, if someone invites you over for dinner, you never rock up empty handed. You always have to bring something, even if it's just like a cheapy bottle of wine or something. So in the same way, when we're at mass during the offertory, we should never just sit there empty handed. You know, that's our opportunity to bring something to the altar. You know, in our hearts, we can bring all of our prayers and our intentions, our sorrows, you know, the work that we've done that week, the pain that we've suffered, any joys that we've experienced, the people that we're carrying in our hearts. In fact, at the mass, we should offer our whole selves at the altar in union with Christ's sacrifice on the cross in that moment of the offertory. At this point, I know that some of my Protestant friends would probably chime in and say, hang on a second, Caitlin, this is starting to sound a little bit iffy. Like you're talking about the priest offering a sacrifice at the altar and you're talking about all of us also bringing things to offer in that sacrifice. But surely that's not necessary. 
Like, Christ has already offered the one definitive sacrifice on the cross, right? I mean, we read about it in Hebrews chapter 7. Unlike the other high priests, Christ has no need to offer sacrifices day after day. This he did once and for all when he offered himself. Okay, so Christ has already offered himself on the cross. So why are we now talking about offering sacrifices? Surely that implies that Christ's death was somehow insufficient or incomplete, which is heresy. Okay, great point, And we should clarify this. So Pope John Paul II talks about this in his encyclical Ecclesia de Eucharistia. He says, the mass makes present the sacrifice of the cross. It does not add to that sacrifice, nor does it multiply it. What is repeated is its memorial celebration, its commemorative representation, which makes Christ's one definitive redemptive sacrifice always present in time. Okay, <laughs> so that's a little bit dense, but basically what he's saying is this. Christ only has one body. Right? He doesn't have multiple bodies. He's got one body. And that one body was sacrificed for us on the cross one time definitively. And we cannot add to that sacrifice. Okay. So when we celebrate the Eucharist, when the priest holds up the host and says, this is my body, what's happening in that moment is that that one sacrifice is being made present to us here and now. It's like a portal opens and suddenly we are at the foot of the cross. Like Christ's one body is here on the altar and we are present to that sacrifice. And we can then draw down the fruits of that sacrifice and unite ourselves to it. Now, we've mentioned a bunch of times before that as Christians, we are part of the one mystical body of Christ. And in the last episode, we talked about how when we receive communion, we literally absorb the body of Christ into our own bodies. We are united more deeply and more profoundly with that one body of Christ. So what does that mean? Well, if we are part of the one body of Christ, then that means Everything that we do can be united with the one sacrifice of Christ's body on the cross. So when we say that we bring our whole selves to the altar at mass, that we offer everything at the offertory, again, we're not talking about adding these additional sacrifices or offerings to Christ's death on the cross. We're talking about how I, as a member of the one church, which is the body of Christ, I can participate in my own suffering and prayer and work through the Mass in that one sacrificial offering of Christ on the cross. It's like St. Paul says in Colossians 1.24, In my flesh, I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. So it's not that there's anything insufficient in Christ's sacrifice. What is lacking is my participation in that sacrifice. And by the way, because the whole body of Christ is offered in that one sacrifice, that means that every single time the Mass is celebrated, the whole church participates and is offered as the body of Christ. 
And this means that no matter where I am, no matter what I'm doing, I can at any time unite myself with the mass because there's pretty much always a mass going on somewhere in the world. And by uniting myself to the mass, all of my prayer and my work and all of the everyday things of my life become redemptive, right? They take on a new value. Okay, so we need to backtrack a little bit because we were talking about the order of the mass and then I got a little bit overexcited and sidetracked. So we were talking about the offertory, right? The second half of the mass begins with the offertory where we bring gifts of bread and wine and also our whole selves and offer them at the altar. Now, after the offertory, we come to what the catechism calls the heart and the summit of the celebration. So this is the peak of the mountain. This is the moment where the bread and wine are consecrated by the priest and become the body and blood of Christ. So after the priest has said some prayers of thanksgiving and has asked the father to send down the Holy Spirit on the bread and wine, he then pronounces the words of the consecration itself. In order for the consecration of the bread and wine to be valid, we need a couple of things. First of all, the matter, which is the bread and the wine. And then the form, which is the words spoken by Christ at the Last Supper and then pronounced by the priest at the altar. This is my body, which will be given up for you. This is the cup of my blood, etc. Now, these words need to be spoken by a validly ordained priest. It's not like they're a magic spell. Like if anyone says them, they can just consecrate the bread and wine. That is not how that works. Now, why is that? Well, because Christ only gave permission to consecrate the bread and wine to his disciples when he said to them, do this in memory of me. And then they handed that power on to their successors and so on. So those words are only going to be effective when they are spoken by someone who has that power given by God. And now I want to spend some time here thinking about those words that the priest says, this is my body, this is my blood. St. Ambrose, who is writing in the fourth century, points out that when it comes to performing the sacrament, the priest doesn't use his own expressions but he uses the expressions of Christ. Thus, he says, the expression of Christ performs this sacrament. So, in other words, the priest has no power of his own. All he can do is simply to repeat the words that Christ himself said and to act as an instrument of God's power. So this is the way that Peter Kraft puts it. He says that consecration is what the priest does. Transubstantiation is what God does. God is its cause. The priest is his instrument. And this is an important point. When the priest is at the altar saying the mass, he is not standing there as Father Joe or, you know, Father Bill acting in his own right. When the priest is up there on the altar saying the mass, he is what we call in persona Christi or in the person of Christ. So in point 1348, the catechism says that Christ himself presides over every Eucharistic celebration. So he is the one at the head of the Eucharistic assembly. The priest simply acts in the person of Christ. He represents Christ to us in that moment. 
And this is important because what it means is that the validity of the sacrament relies on God. Okay, It doesn't rely on the priest. It doesn't rely on whether the priest is a good person or a bad person or a nice guy or not a nice guy. Even if the priest is in a state of mortal sin, as long as he uses the correct matter and form and he's been validly ordained, the sacrament will be valid because it's God's power that's important, not the priest. So we know, right, that God wants every single person ever to be completely united with him. And so in an ideal world, everyone would be able to receive him in communion. Like that's what God wants. But does this mean that, you know, anyone in the world could just walk into a Catholic church and receive communion? Well, no. The Catholic Church has always set conditions on receiving Christ in the Eucharist. The Eucharist is intended for everyone, but not everyone is in a state where they can actually receive it. So the compendium of the Catechism in point number 291 says that in order to receive Holy Communion, one must be fully incorporated into the Catholic Church and be in a state of grace that is not conscious of being in mortal sin. Okay, so if you want to receive communion, you've got to be a Catholic and you've got to be in a state of grace. Now, I've had non-Catholic friends say to me before that these conditions seem a little bit unfair. Like, surely if God wants to be as close to us as possible and he wants everyone to be united to him, he wouldn't be so picky, right? He wouldn't be like, well, technically you have to be a Catholic. You know, surely he would just offer himself to anyone who wants to receive him. Well, a couple of things here. First of all, I know that in some Protestant churches, communion is celebrated, but it's just a symbol, right? It's just a sign of unity and fellowship, and it's a way of calling to mind what Christ did for us on the cross. Now, if communion is just a symbol, it makes total sense that you would want to include absolutely everyone in that symbolic meal. Like, it would be weird and a bit uncharitable to exclude anyone from that. It'd be like, you know, when kids put a sign on their door being like, club members only, you can't come inside. The problem is that that's not what communion is in the Catholic Church. Communion is not just a symbol. It is truly the body of Christ. And that means that it is infinitely sacred. And when something is sacred, you have to be really careful with it, right? Like, say that you inherited a diamond necklace from your great-grandmother, and you wanted to share it with your friends. You wouldn't just, you know, chuck it in your backpack and then take it to school and whip it out and sort of hand it around to everyone or, you know, chuck it to your friend across the room. No, of course, you would put it in something special that's going to protect it. And then if someone wanted to hold it or have a go of it, You would first explain to them what it is and why it's so significant. And you would want to make sure that they believed you, that they understood its significance and they were going to treat it with reverence and care. And it's exactly the same with the Eucharist. As Catholics, of course, we want everyone ideally, ultimately to share in the Eucharist. But we also want to make sure that they actually understand and believe that he is truly there. And as well as this, you know, when the church says that non-Catholics shouldn't receive communion, this is actually the church showing respect for people of different faiths. Like, you know, as a Catholic, I don't have the right and I wouldn't want to demand that a friend of mine who isn't a Catholic participate in an act of worship that went against what they actually believe. Now, what happens when I go up to receive communion at mass or when anyone goes up to receive communion at mass? 
What happens is the priest holds the host up, shows it to us and says, the body of Christ. And we respond, amen. So in that moment, the church is asking that person, do you personally believe that this is the body of Christ? And when we say amen, we are affirming that yes, we do. And if that's something that I actually don't believe, like that's a pretty serious thing to say. I mean, if I went to a friend's church of another faith, I wouldn't kneel down in front of a God that I don't believe in. I'm not going to worship their God if I don't believe in it. So out of respect for people who you know have a different faith, the church says, look, if you believe that this is just a piece of bread, we maintain and uphold your right to act in accordance with that belief by refraining from receiving the Eucharist, which we worship as the true body of Christ. There are some rare situations where a non-Catholic might receive the Eucharist. So in point number 1401, the Catechism says, when a grave necessity arises, Catholic ministers may give the sacraments of Eucharist, penance, and anointing of the sick to other Christians, not in full communion with the Catholic Church, who ask for them of their own will, provided that they give evidence of holding the Catholic faith regarding those sacraments and they possess the required dispositions. Okay, so when would a situation like this arise? Well, for example, like if someone is about to die or maybe, you know, if you're trapped in a war zone and you don't have access to like the RCIA, okay, if someone is a Christian and they want to be in full communion with the Catholic Church and they truly believe that Christ is present in the Eucharist, In that instance, the church isn't just going to be like, nah, sorry, we don't have time to fit in all the RCIA classes. You'll just have to miss out. No, of course not. The church's main priority is to get people to heaven and to bring them to the sacraments. But normally you do have to be a Catholic in full communion with the church to receive communion. Now, note that I have said in full communion with the church. And this is an important point. Like this isn't just a thing of Catholics versus non-Catholics. Even if you're a baptized, confirmed Catholic, You don't have some sort of absolute right to communion. If you are conscious of having committed a serious sin, a mortal sin that cuts you off from communion with Christ, then you also cannot receive communion. You need to go to confession before you go and receive communion. So these requirements, does this mean that anyone who isn't in full communion with the Catholic Church is somehow excluded from participating in the life of the church? No. Absolutely not. If you are not a Catholic, or even if you are a Catholic, but you're not in a state of grace, you are absolutely, completely welcome in the Catholic Church. You're welcome to attend the Mass. And when it's time for communion, you can go up and receive a blessing from the priest rather than receiving communion if you want to. You can also, you know, join in in parish activities. You can participate in the Bible study or the youth group, you know, whatever you want. You can get involved. It's kind of like, you know, if my family had a rule in our house that you have to take off your shoes if you want to jump on the trampoline. Now, say someone comes to visit our house and for whatever reason, they can't take off their shoes or they don't want to take their shoes off. That's fine. You know, we're not going to say, like, get out of our house. You're not welcome here. Of course not. That person would still be welcome to come inside, spend time with us, get to know us, be our friend, stay for dinner. We would ask that they refrain from jumping on the trampoline. Like, that's important. Please don't jump on the trampoline. But apart from that, you're absolutely welcome in our home. Okay, so these are the essential conditions for receiving the Eucharist. You've got to be a Catholic in full communion with the church. 
But even if you meet those conditions, there are a few other things that the church asks everyone to do before they receive communion. So first of all, in point 1385, the catechism says, we must prepare ourselves for so great and so holy a moment. And then it goes on to encourage us to examine our conscience and to go to confession if we need to before we go to mass. So obviously we have to go to confession if we've committed a serious sin, but even if we haven't, you know, even if we've only committed venial sins, it's always a good idea to go to confession anyway before receiving the Eucharist because we want to be as prepared as possible to receive him. You know, like if you were going to your friend's birthday party, of course you wouldn't rock up covered head to toe in mud. Like that just goes without saying. But even if you only had like a little stain on your T-shirt or whatever, you would still try to wash it off before you arrived because that's just an act of respect and love for your friend. Another way that we can prepare ourselves to receive our Lord is through prayer. So the catechism suggests that we pray the prayer of the Roman centurion in the gospel. Lord, I am not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and my soul will be healed. So that's one prayer that we can pray before mass. We could also pray a spiritual communion. And there are a bunch of other prayers, many of them composed by saints, that we can use to prepare ourselves to receive the Eucharist. So I'll see if I can track down some of those and put links to them in the show notes. Now, even after we've received communion, it's also a good idea that we spend a few minutes saying some prayers of thanksgiving in front of the tabernacle. So maybe 10 or 15 minutes, we can just sit quietly, you know, praying and just being present to our Lord because we've just received him in the Eucharist. Now, the next thing the catechism tells us is that we need to fast before we receive communion. So the code of canon law states that we have to abstain from all food and drink except for water and medicine for at least one hour before we receive communion. The only exception that it makes to this is for the elderly, the infirm and those who care for them. So everyone else has to fast for one hour before they receive the Eucharist. And then again, even after we've received communion, it's a good idea to refrain from eating if we can for maybe about 15 minutes, just as a sign of reverence to our Lord. And then lastly, in point 1387, the catechism also says that our bodily demeanor, our gestures, clothing ought to convey the respect, solemnity and joy of this moment when Christ becomes our guest. So in other words, we should dress nicely for Mass. (laughs) I mean, we don't need to rock up to Sunday Mass in a ball gown. Like, don't be weird about it. But at the same time, you know, our clothing and our behavior says a lot about how seriously we're taking something. Like, imagine if you were going on a date and you rocked up in like a singlet and shorts and thongs. Like, it's not a great look. And it is an implicit way of saying you are not very important to me. Or, you know, imagine if you went to a wedding and you were sitting like right in the front row, you know, sort of slumped in your seat with your elbows propped up on the back of your chair, having a chat to your mate during the vows. Like it would be pretty insulting. So it's the same with the mass, right? We need in our behavior, the way we hold ourselves, the clothes that we wear, we need to just show that we have love and respect for what's happening. Now, here's an interesting point. The Catholic Church doesn't actually require that we receive communion every Sunday. So Catholics are only actually obliged to receive communion once a year, and it has to be during the Easter season. We need to attend Mass every Sunday, but if we attend Mass and for whatever reason we can't receive communion, we've still met our Sunday obligation. It's not a sin if we don't receive communion. And in fact, actually, at certain points in history, like during the medieval period, 
people didn't receive communion that often. Like they, maybe they would receive it like a handful of times in a year. So we're actually really lucky that as Catholics, we can receive communion, not only on Sundays, but every day if we want to. And this is the thing, right? Like we're not required to receive communion every time we go to mass, but at the same time, like why wouldn't we? <laughs> like why would we not receive our Lord as often as we possibly could? I mean, if we truly believe that this is God, love itself, present there in the host, then like, you know, what are we waiting for? Like, this is the greatest gift we should ever receive. In fact, in points 1391 to 1397, the catechism like lists off all of the benefits that come with receiving the Eucharist. And it kind of puts it all into perspective. It tells us that the Eucharist unites us more fully with Christ, preserves and increases God's grace in our souls cleanses us from any venial sins that we've committed, like it actually wipes away venial sin, helps to preserve us from committing future sins, including mortal sins, strengthens our love for God and for others, and unites us to the rest of the church. I mean, this list is basically just a list of our life goals, right? Like the whole point of our lives is for us to become as closely united to Christ and to his church as possible. So, you know, with that in mind, it makes total sense that we would try to receive our Lord in the Eucharist as often as we possibly can. Okay, so that's all we have time for today on the Eucharist. Next episode, we're going to be talking about confession. Such fun. Can't wait. This has been lovely. I hope you have a fantastic fortnight, and I will look forward to talking to you soon. Bye. Hey, friends. Sorry. I know the episode is over. This is future Caitlin chiming in. After I published this episode, I got an email from a listener with a really great question about whether or not Catholics, fully incorporated Catholics, can receive communion if they don't agree with all of the church's teachings. This was a really great question, um, but it's a very complex one. So I've included a link to a Google document that contains the kind of substance of the conversation that we had for anyone else who's interested in this question. So that's the, a link to that document is in the show notes. Okay, bye. Bye.